On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. So far in the series, Mike, we've been reflecting on Jesus' childhood. I'm very interested to find out about his beliefs, kind of where they came from. So let's unpack that for a little bit. And uh, where are we now? We've come to a place that is, for most tourists who come to Israel, one of the most exciting places to come to. We've come to a model of the ancient city of Jerusalem from round about the time of Jesus, the Second Temple period, um, which is built here in the grounds of the Museum of Israel. It was originally built in the grounds of, of a hotel, uh, and the owner was a, a rich banker who built this model of Jerusalem, really a, an amazing model, in memory of his son who had got killed in the 1947-49 war here. And uh, it, it was designed and constructed by an Israeli historian and geographer based on the writings of Josephus and other historical sources. Uh, and in 2006, it was moved from the grounds of the Holy Land Hotel to sit right alongside the museum here within the shadow of the Israeli Knesset, the parliament. And it is an absolutely amazing model. It covers uh, 2,000 square metres, about 22,000 square feet, and is a replica of how... Jerusalem might have looked in the time of Jesus. Now I say might, there are some parts of it we know were exactly as they are in this model. We're sitting here overlooking it on the south side of the city. And I think it's important just to get a sense of the scale. I mean, it's almost like a sort of tennis court size model. This isn't like a little model village in, 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 in the UK. This is on a grand scale, as you say. It's huge. And as you look at it, the thing that immediately hits you is the temple dominates everything oh absolutely i mean it fills i don't know a fifth of the city at a rough guess here um and we can see the huge temple platform and the great courtyards that herod the great began to build and that were continued after his death we can see the temple sanctuary towering up above the city there in the middle of those courtyards just beyond it we can see the fortress of Antonia the Roman base of power interesting as you look at it there David abutting the temple on its northwest corner um, and dominating over it so from the top you could look over and keep your eye on what was going on with all these you know Jewish rebellious people down there to the south of the temple we see the old city of David which was so small really originally and near that we can see the Pool of Siloam, the path that went up from there to those great temple steps that led through the Holder Gates up underneath the platform so that you came out into the middle of it. It must have been so impressive when pilgrims came to Jerusalem. You know, homes were so small and we can see here in the foreground representations of lots of little homes. Now these are mainly artists' impressions because obviously we've not been able to excavate the whole of Jerusalem. One thing that we do know uh, was over there was Herod's palace on the west side of the city, again dominating that part of the city. So what we get here is a city utterly dominated by the temple and all that it represented. 
So Jesus would have come here as a boy and, like everybody else, been amazed at the spectacle. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were times, weren't there, when Jesus came here with his disciples, they would have come at least three times a year for the feasts of Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles, those three feasts that the Jewish law required every Jewish male to attend the temple. And so he came here with his disciples and there's one occasion when they say, wow, Lord, look at these great stones. They were amazed by it, just as Jesus himself would have been amazed by it as he grew up. We know that he would have been brought here by his godly family. There's at least one story where we find him here when he was 12 years old. Uh, so, yeah, this would have been, you know, for a little lad from Nazareth, a backwater town, so much of a backwater that when those first disciples, one of them discovers Jesus and says, I think I found the Messiah and he comes from Nazareth. One of them says, Nazareth, you know, what good can come out of Nazareth? So to come from that sort of place to hear this magnificent city of those days um, must have been incredible and overwhelming. So the temple was a massive influence on Jewish life at the time and Jesus was growing up in that atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was the place to come. That temple sanctuary that we're looking at down there, the back third of it was the Holy of Holies, where in the first temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC, that's where the Ark of the Covenant would have resided. That was what represented God's throne here on earth. Now, that Ark of the Covenant was lost. We think it was probably broken up and destroyed by the Babylonians for its gold. Um, so there was no Ark of the Covenant by New Testament times. But that still represented the throne of God here on earth. And that's why when pilgrims came here, um, they came with such joy. Look at some of those psalms at the end of the book of Psalms. They're often called the, the songs of ascent. And they were psalms that the pilgrims would have sung on their way up, probably coming up from Jericho, singing as they went, coming up here from the pool of Siloam up to the city. And Jesus would have joined in with that. So that place represented so much of what lay at the heart of Jewish spiritual life. Of course, by the time of Jesus, that place also represented so much of what was wrong with Jewish religious life. So what else would have been the influences on his beliefs? Well, I think it's really important that we remember something pretty obvious, but sometimes it's that obvious that many modern Western Christians forget it. And that is that Jesus was born as and grew up as a Jew, a Jew who lived in the first century. And so he would have held deeply to those fundamental beliefs that lay at the heart of Judaism, that were revealed in the Torah, the law, that were revealed in the prophets and the writings of scripture. So these things would have shaped Jesus' life as he grew up as a Jew. So that's why we're understanding more and more these days, and scholars are seeing the significance of this. It's so important we sort of put Jesus in his context as a Jew in the first century. Because the more we're able to do that, the more we're able to see, aha, okay, I see what he was saying now. So he would have grown up as a Jewish boy, trained in his faith by his father 
and his mother, we know that they were genuinely godly people. I mean, when we had looked at those early stories of how the angel came to Mary and her godly response, how Joseph didn't divorce her but heard what God was saying through the angel about going ahead and marrying her, we know that what we've got here is a godly family. It's not a nominally spiritual family. It's a genuinely godly family. So what would that have meant for Jesus as he'd grown up? Well, it would have been being taught from the earliest age what is called by Jews the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, listen. And that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 and 5 onwards. And I'll just read that for us. Hear, O Israel, Shema, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So teach your children these things. So as godly people, that's what Joseph and Mary would have taught Jesus from his youngest days. There is only one God and he is the Lord God. Now, if he is the only God, then something follows. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Why? Because you don't need to keep anything in reserve for any other so-called God. Remember, uh, these were days of polytheism, a belief in many gods. All the surrounding peoples believed in many gods. But the very heart of Jewish faith is there is only one God, the Lord God, Yahweh. And because there's only one, love him with everything you've got. Don't give him... 75% and keep 25% just in case there might be some other gods around. There's only him. Love him with everything that you've got. Teach this to your children. And I love the imagery that is used here in Deuteronomy about tying them as symbols on your, your hands and binding them on your foreheads, writing them on the doorposts of your house. Now, for many Jews today, that is expressed in very tangible ways uh, you will find as you go into the home of a devout jewish person a little mezuzah uh, by the door for some by every door in the house except the door to the bathroom and inside that little mezuzah it's just a slim narrow box will be this scripture and a couple of other scriptures and it's a way of reminding them every time they come in they touch it as though they're remembering this some Jews today will have uh, what they call tefillin, which are leather-covered boxes, which are literally tied to their foreheads. So you will see Jews here by the Western Wall often with these uh, tefillin tied to their heads and strapped around their arms in a particular way so that when their arm comes close to their body, that command is kept close to their heart. Now, 
it seems that by the time of Jesus, some Jews were not only taking that literally, uh, but were going to extremes with it, you know, and having huge tefillin on their heads and on their arms. But I think it seems pretty clear that this is a picture that God is using of the principle he's just given. Love God with everything you are and have and take every opportunity in your families to remember this most fundamental of truth. There's only one God. So don't hold anything back. Give everything you are and have to him and him alone. And that would have been the most fundamental thing that Jesus would have been taught as he grew up. The influence of Mary and Joseph was then obviously very significant. So if, uh, you know, when Jesus became a teenager, he went off track, you could have blamed his parents. <laughs> yeah, you could. Thankfully, he didn't go off track, did he? But they trained him well. And of course, there's a lot in the scriptures, particularly in books like Proverbs, that encourage parents to train their children the way that they should go so that in later life they won't throw off the traces. So, yeah, these would have been the things that Jesus was taught from the earliest days. And, of course, not just by his parents. The other place where he would have learnt not just that basic truth, but he would have learnt the history of God's people, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, from whom the whole story of the Old Testament flows out. And he would have heard about all of that Sabbath by Sabbath, as he went to synagogue. Now, we're going to come across synagogues many times, and we'll find that, as an older man, Jesus used to go to synagogue. It had so been drilled into him from his earliest days. It's Sabbath. What do you do on Sabbath? You go to synagogue. What did you do in synagogue? You read the scriptures together. You studied them together. You perhaps listened to a message together. And this was a place where you focused your life on the what we would call the Old Testament. For the Jews, the Tanakh. Tanakh is an acronym. T-N-K. T stood for Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. N for Nevi'im, the prophets. K for Ketuvim, the writings. Because Jews divide up their scriptures into three sections, law, prophets writing so they're in a slightly different order to our bibles though containing the same books so these are the formative things that would have shaped jesus's life and beliefs as a young boy growing up his parents and what they put into him and how they trained him and what he would have learned and debated about in the synagogue as he grew up learning about the history of god's people and his purposes for the world through them just flashing forward to today for a second and thinking of Christian parents as they bring up children and the hopes they have for their child in terms of their faith. You know, you've, uh, you've got many a story, I'm sure, about that. Yes, you know, and the honest truth is I've probably, being honest, got stories on both sides. I know where Christian parents have done everything right and train their children in the right way, but at the end of the day, those children have to make decisions for themselves. We can't be a Christian for someone else. And I've got many a story where parents have done that and children have come to a decision, maybe seven, eight years old even, some as young as sort of four and five years old, but certainly by teenage years when 
a more mature adult mind is forming where they've made that decision to follow Jesus for themselves. And as a parent who's got three daughters who've walked that way, I tell you, there's, there's no greater joy. So what you pray for more than anything, that your kids will keep following Jesus, will find a good partner in life, you know, will have kids that they will train as well. But I've also known parents who've tried their very hardest to do the right thing and taught their kids in the right way, who have then rejected all of it as they've grown up. And, you know, there's, there's no sort of magic formula, if I can put it that way. And what I say to parents in those situations is, look, don't despair. Trust God. You've done all that you can. You've put seed into them. And I know at the moment they're either indifferent to it or are rejecting it. You just keep praying for them because one day God could suddenly break into their lives and all that seed that was sown all those years ago could suddenly burst forth into fruit for God again. So, you know, never despair, never give up. Keep on praying for them. They might say to you, don't talk to me about religion anymore. Well, you're going to have to honor that. But I'll tell you what, they can stop you talking to them about it, but they certainly can't stop you praying for them. Just before Jesus became a teenager, at the age of 12, he was indeed engaged in a very interesting conversation, was he not? Yes, he was, and we'll take a look at that because I think it's quite an interesting passage that we're going to turn to in a moment in Luke chapter 2 because what it shows us is that when Jesus was born, you know, he, he didn't have all knowledge ready there formed. We've seen that when Jesus came into this world, the Word was truly made flesh. The Son of God truly became a complete, full human being. And Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. In other words, he had to grow up in every dimension, physically, socially, intellectually, spiritually. It wasn't all prepackaged, waiting for a button to be pressed. And so in this story, we find him coming here to Jerusalem, coming to that great temple whose model we see down below, and coming not just to listen, but starting to question and debate with the religious teachers, showing how very much his own spiritual development was growing at this stage. So why don't we read from Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, oh my goodness, any parent who's lost their child, even for a few minutes, will know the anguish and anxiety you would be feeling. Clearly, you know, the men used to travel together, the women and kids traveled together. The men thought, because he was 12, well, maybe he's still with the women and kids. The women thought, oh, he's 12 now, he's probably traveling with the men, and it's not for a whole day of travel, they start to say, isn't he with you? No, we thought he was with you. Back they go. 
and it's after three days that they find him. My goodness, their hearts must have been in their mouths. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So clearly he was, he had developed a, a sort of beyond his age. He, you know, he was thinking thoughts and asking questions and exploring things in a way way beyond a 12-year-old here, and they're pretty amazed at that. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus asked, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He's referring, of course, there to the temple. But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and men. Does it sound like he's a little bit forward having this interaction with the religious people? No, I don't think it's being forward at all. I mean, <laughs> being ready to engage in thinking about the scriptures was fundamental to Judaism. You know, Jews are a people of the book. They have been from the very beginning of their history. And so I, I think they were clearly amazed. You know, they were, they were surprised, but they weren't offended. They were thinking, wow, this is a young boy who's showing promise here. You know, he's, he's asking the right sort of questions. And scholars are pretty sure the sort of questions that he would have been asking weren't questions for information so much as questions that caused them to give thoughtful and searching answers themselves. And hence, they're amazed. Of course, as he grew up, his own style involved questioning people who questioned him oh absolutely uh, he loved doing that didn't he when people came with uh, a particular question you know teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life Jesus's answer what's written in the law how do you read it so pushing people back to think for themselves pushing people back to the scriptures uh, and that's still a good thing to do today you know sometimes in the West we're too quick to spoon feed people aren't we and it's great you know to push people back into the bible for themselves and to see the answers there and questions are one way of learning yeah absolutely um you know they're one of the best ways of learning because uh, in asking questions you you're getting answers to the things you really want to know rather than what you your teacher thinks you want to know so when it comes down to it what did jesus actually believe well, of course, I suppose I could answer that at two different levels. As a real human being, there is no doubt at all that he grew in his knowledge and his faith. So he would have believed that there is one God, that you do have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. He would have believed the Bible. He would have believed 
the scriptures. In fact, many times he'll come back and he deals with issues, doesn't he, by saying it is written or quoting scripture. You know, for anyone today who's doubting whether we can trust the Bible or not, all I can say to you is, well, if it was good enough for Jesus, I think it might be good enough for us. He would have believed too in the kingdom of God. That teaching that we look at in a future episode that God is a king who rules over all things, that life works best when we put ourselves under his kingly rule and that one day that kingly rule is going to fill the whole earth just as the prophet saw. So all these things would become features of his teaching. Clearly there are points in his life where on a flip side he knew more than just a good Jewish believer would have known. Clearly as the Son of God and particularly after the Holy Spirit comes upon him at his baptism and God affirms to him all that he's been coming to conviction and in his own human thinking that Yes, I'm not crazy, am I? I really am the Son of God come into this world because he didn't know that when he was a baby in the cradle. So clearly there are moments from that point on where Jesus shows clear awareness of another dimension, a, a relationship with God that is different from anyone else's, a relationship with the Father that went back to the beginning of everything and the knowledge that he had come for a particular purpose. So the cross doesn't come to him as, as a shock. He knows it, he prophesies it. So it's like two sides of a coin, David. On the one hand, what did he believe? What every good Jew believed at that time, certainly those Jews that weren't abusing it, as so often the power base down there at the temple would do through the Sadducees and the religious Pharisees, so on one side, a good Jew who would have believed these fundamentals. On the other side, clearly with an insight because of who he was from all eternity. Just again, flashing forward to today, anybody who hasn't clarified what their beliefs are, you know, nowadays there's all sorts of philosophies of life. People believe all sorts of things. What do you have to believe to be a Christian? Yeah, very good question. Um, well, I suppose, you know, you would strip it back to its basics and it comes down to you need to believe something about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And I would say those are the two key pegs that make someone a Christian. First of all, who Jesus was. You have to believe that Jesus truly was the Word made flesh. He was God come into this world. That he's not just a man a good man, a prophet, a man with insight, a religious guru. No, the Bible is very clear that Jesus is no one less than God himself come into this world. So I would say, you know, you've not really got there yet. You can't really be a Christian if you've got any doubts that Jesus was anyone less than the Son of God himself come into this world. Second, you have to believe what what Jesus did and what he came for. Now that doesn't mean that you have to already understand every bit of teaching that Jesus ever gave. But I think what you do have to understand as a minimum is that Jesus came into this world as God's son 
to show us how to live, to call us to be disciples, trainees, who would follow him and learn in life, and most fundamentally, that Jesus came into this world to be our saviour, to be that promised suffering servant that Isaiah saw who would die on the cross in our place to pay the price of our sins and who would be raised to life again on the third day to show that God had accepted that sacrifice and that whoever now believes in him, that is, commits their life to him rather than just has intellectual assent that these are facts, but belief in the sense of giving your whole life to him. And if you do, then you're saved. Then you've got a relationship with God through Jesus that will never end, that not even death will end. You'll have what the Bible calls eternal life. So I think those are the two key pegs, believing who Jesus is, no one less than God himself, and believing what Jesus did, that he came to die on the cross for us in order to bring us back into relationship with God in a way that starts us on an exciting adventure of discipleship and learning about how to live in God's kingdom under his direction. So alongside belief in Jesus comes following Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Jesus himself modelled that in his own life. Who did he follow? He followed his father. I can only do what I see my father doing. It's one of my favourite Bible verses. He was constantly following the leading of his father every day. And as Christians, we are called to follow him. One of the first calls that Jesus gave is there in Mark chapter 1. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So come, make that decision to come to me. Start following me, walk where I walk, live like I live. And if you do, I've got a destiny for you. I will transform you into everything that my father's got in his heart for you to be. So as we just conclude this conversation, looking again across this massive model of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus and the way in which the temple dominated, just pray for us now, Mike. Lord, we want to declare today even as Jesus himself would have declared that the Lord our God the Lord is one and we want to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength Jesus you modeled this for us help us therefore to be true disciples and to follow you Acknowledging there is no God but the one God and therefore never fearful of holding anything back lest there be any others. Lord, we do bless you for coming among us to show us what the Father is like and for dying on the cross to making it possible for us to know him. And for that we thank you today in your name. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. 
Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.